This is an ABC podcast. Uh, kia ora koutou and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Eggie Dubol, and I do want to acknowledge, as I did last week for Tongan Language Week, that this week is Te Wiki o Te Reo Māori. It is Happy Māori Language Week. So I say ngā mihi a koutou, which is thank you for joining us this morning. Today on the show, a wave of tribal fighting in Papua New Guinea leaving 70 dead. Minister of Education for Samoa wants full transition from English to Samoan and cultural tattoos barred from a nightclub has now led to changes. For any of these stories and more, just type in Pacific Beta in your search engine. Feel free to share these stories all across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Tupaua and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, the Methodist Church in Fiji says it's about time authorities targeted a South Korean religious group it calls a cult and that built a business empire with the help of the previous government. Police have arrested five senior members of the Grace Road Church, including its leader, deported two of them and refused to allow another into the country over the weekend. Meanwhile, Grace Road is trying to switch the narrative and portray itself as a victim of heavy-handed government repression, with a social media campaign highlighting its local employees. Liam Fox reports. In a video posted to Facebook on Sunday, around a dozen employees at one of Grace Road's many supermarkets in Fiji stand together holding placards reading, Justice for Grace. It's part of what appears to be a concerted social media campaign by the religious and business group to highlight its local employees after its South Korean leaders were targeted by police and immigration authorities last week. Some of those employees also posted messages on their personal Facebook pages, referring to themselves as part of the Grace Road family and thanking the organisation for the opportunity of employment. But not everyone shares those sentiments. We call it a cult movement because it's away from the mainstream movement. Cult movements is away from what we see in the Bible and what the Bible teaches. Reverend Wilfred Ragunamanda is the spokesman for the Methodist Church in Fiji. He says the church has long been concerned about Grace Road's entry into the country and the expansion of its business interests under the former government led by Frank Bainimarama. They came in the right time and used the opportunity of a desperate government who are really looking for, for you know, investors to come in the country. And they, and they used that opportunity, they used that leadership, that kind of leadership, that uh, dictatorship leadership, and it matches their policy, the way they work. Until recently, Grace Road had enjoyed a dream run in Fiji. It was welcomed by the Bainimarama government when around 400 followers relocated from South Korea in 2014. With the help of state-backed loans, the religious group morphed into a business conglomerate with interests in agriculture, construction, supermarkets, restaurants, petrol stations, beauty salons and even dental clinics. That's despite Grace Road's leader, Shin Ok-ju, being convicted in South Korea of child abuse, false imprisonment and assault of her followers back in 2019. And despite the South Korean government cancelling the passports of seven other senior members and issuing warrants for their arrest the year before, including for its current leader, Shin's son, Kim Jong-yong, Interpol issued red notices for them as well. That all changed following the election of a new government late last year led by Sitovani Rambuka. 
Now, Grace Road's president, Kim Jong-yong, also known as Daniel Kim, is among those arrested and facing deportation, and the Home Affairs Minister described Grace Road as a cult when announcing the moves last week. Grace Road has gone to court to try and stop the deportations. Another senior executive, Director Aram Song, posted a video over the weekend describing the crackdown as religious persecution. This current situation is not about our President Daniel King and six other members and individuals, but rather an attack on the entire jail group, the company, a religious group of 400 people and valued local employees who have become GR group family. One of the many questions that remains unanswered is if senior Grace Road leaders are deported, what impact will that have on the group's business arm and the locals they employ? And that's Liam Fox reporting. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. In Papua New Guinea's highlands, a recent wave of tribal fighting has left about 70 people dead, while thousands have fled their homes and many villages have been burnt to the ground. Police are trying to escalate their response, but say they're outgunned by armed tribes. PNG correspondent Tim Swanson and producer Thekla Gunya travelled to Inga province. In Panjis North, we're driving on the main highway from Western Province to Enga. It's been in a lockdown for several months with no flights in and out and a curfew in place for many of the districts. We stop at a checkpoint where police and defence personnel search cars for guns and ammunition that are being smuggled into the region. Police then escort us just past the town of Wapinamanda, where the devastation from tribal fighting begins. Many villages have been burnt to the ground, destroyed in retribution attacks that have drawn in more clans over the last few months. We find Sikin man Martin Mark by the highway near the charred remains of his village's market. We lost everything and went to live in another area. We are handicapped. It disturbed our schools, work and livelihoods. Further up the road, we hear gunshots coming from a nearby village and stop at a temporary police base set up in a school that's been closed. Here, police and defence watch on from atop a ridge as pillars of smoke rise up from a nearby village. We become... Uh, like spectators, sir. Huh? Mm. Richard Koki is the Enga Rural Police Commander. A lot of uh, high-powered weapons been used, and also in terms of funding support, there are uh, leaders in the tribal community. They are the source of the financing side of. Uh, buying guns and uh, bullets. Police are applying for search warrants for the communications devices of the people they describe as known agitators, who they believe are supplying the weapons. Tribal violence is historic and complex, but it's the introduction of more firearms and even young men acting as hired guns that is worrying the nation. Lenny Meliso, Deputy Mayor of Enga's capital, Wabag, says the violence has displaced thousands of people. Town itself is safe now. It's good, but people are scattered all over the place. People are misplaced. And uh, we are accommodating them because we have a Melanesian society. At a church rally for peace, we meet Lucy Sendol, a primary school teacher who says her village and school were destroyed in an attack. They burnt down our houses. We didn't take anything except our keys and fled with our children. 
We took nothing, no blankets, no mattresses, no eating utensils, nothing at all. Police Commander Richard Cokie says police reinforcements are on the way. Until and unless we have the complete uh, peace in every tribe and in every district, that's where uh, we can talk about disarmament. Government can go out and, uh, you know, uh, do a amnesty and, uh, you know, buy back the gun from the people. But brokering a peace between the tribes and then ensuring future fights aren't as deadly as this one is going to be a tough ask. And that is ABC PNG correspondent Tim Swanson in the Inga province. Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. That is the time where we get to see what is happening around the region with our news wrap, uh, presented to us this morning by producer Carl Evans. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, Aggie. I'm well. How about yourself? I am doing good. Thank you very much. It is Tuesday. Feels like a Friday. <laughs> uh, but hey, look, we've... Gosh, this first story is very interesting. A sudden increase in diarrhoea cases in Bar has actually now worried authorities. This is following the deaths of three people in the same area last week. Man, what's the latest? Yeah. Yeah, we first uh, touched on this one uh, on Friday uh, following the deaths of those three people, which uh, actually sparked fears of water contamination in the area. Um, Since then, uh, I believe four more people uh, have died and and there's been a rise in diarrhoea with 60 cases reported in the area and 12 people have also been admitted to hospital, which is, uh, yeah, obviously concerned the Ministry of Health and Medical Services. However, the ministry has confirmed it's been working with the Water Authority of Fiji to test water sources and samples, uh, and results actually indicate that the water supply is not to blame, uh, and there were no signs of, of dead animals or, or anything like that as initially as initially feared, and it's, it's actually likely bacteria. Um, where that's come from, I'm not, I'm not too sure. Um, the ministry also said they've investigated the four deaths. Oh, sorry, the seven deaths now, I should say. Uh, and results indicate that the deaths were due to underlying issues uh, and not related to the current uh, outbreak at all. Um, meanwhile, the opposition leader, um, they, they've called for, they're actually calling it a waterborne disease, um, which has obviously raised more questions and it's been raised in parliament. So, so yeah, at the moment, Aggie, yeah, still wow. more questions than answers. Uh, that sounds about right. But So what's the advice, though, for residents at the moment? Yeah, so uh, at the moment, residents are in the nearby areas and surrounding uh, bar particularly in uh, in uh, Balavutu and it, um, should be should have be boiling all their drinking water uh, and also to wash hands regularly after going to the bathroom um, and yeah look if you are if and if you are experiencing any of anything like such as you know diarrhea nausea vomiting fever headache uh, even bloating or abdominal, abdominal cramps anything like that um, take yourself to uh, to the nearest health facility um, if you can Absolutely better to always be safe than sorry. Uh, let's head to our next story. Air New Zealand has temporarily halted flights to Samoa, leaving passengers stranded. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the airline says it's been forced to pause its services to and from Samoa due to ground service equipment uh, being deemed unfit for service. So this comes after it was made aware on Friday that the equipment required to load and unload passenger bags and cargo uh, was not up to the required standard. And uh, as a result, they made the call to suspend uh, all services uh, until it has been fixed. Uh, that meant that two wide-body services in and out of Apia were cancelled on Saturday and yesterday. And Saturday's flight was actually turned around um, after taking off in Auckland. Oh, okay. <laughs> when will flights resume? So the hope that wide-body flights uh, will resume today. 
Um, uh, following the cancellation, some passengers were able to be squeezed onto some smaller flights. Uh, a recovery flight, I understand, actually departed yesterday as well. However, due to the high demand, uh, many still haven't made it back to Samoa yet, but hopefully they can in the uh, in the coming days. Absolutely. Uh, we end off with sports. Uh, the first athletes village has officially been handed over for the Pacific Games. Is that right? Yeah. So the first village uh, is located at the uh, Don Bosco Technical Institute, and it was officially handed over on Friday. It is a two million dollar facility funded by Australia. Um, four buildings were upgraded all up. Uh, that includes renovations to fifteen classrooms. Uh, it has fifteen showers and fifteen laboratories. And it will home uh, Pacific Game as athletes when that when that gets underway in November. Um, it's going to have some legacy benefits as well. Um, obviously, these are great upgrades, expensive upgrades. So it's going to improve uh, you know learning equipment for education. So students will be able to enjoy that uh, for years to come once uh, once school commences. Thank you very much, Carl, uh, for always updating us on our news wrap. Uh, this is Pacific Beat. Inzane Rugby League on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by ABC Sport commentator Zane Bojack. Inzane Rugby League is a weekly look at the lighter side of rugby league. Featuring game insights, latest news and interviews with rugby league legends and from around the edges. So close to the action, you can almost taste the turf. Inzane Rugby League, Tuesday nights at 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. And now we head to Moalet James, who proudly wears the markings of her ancestors on her face. But it's been a long journey for three generations of women for this to happen. But last year, the Papuan Australian hit the headlines when she was kicked out of a Brisbane nightclub because of her facial tattoos. Since then, a lot of education later, the nightclub has changed its policy. She speaks to Salamasina von Reiki from ABC Radio Australia's Culture Compass. In my language, the Motu language, we call it Reva Reva. So that's to refer to uh, all of the marks, but each of the marks have their own name as well. I'm a Motu Kekini, and I'm also a white Australian woman. Uh, my mother is from Gubba Gubba Village in Papua New Guinea, and my father is a white Australian man who has connections back to England and also to Scotland. Can you tell me a bit about the history of skin marking in Papua New Guinea? Yeah, absolutely. So I can only speak for my community, mm-hmm. so I'll only do that. Um, and I think the best way to tell it is to tell a story about my great-grandmothers. Um, so I have two great-grandmothers on my mother's side. My I have a biological great-grandmother and I have an adopted great-grandmother, but they were sisters. So um, my bubu, which is our word for grandmother, was adopted through that family village system, you know, keeps the babies in the family. Um, my great-grandmothers were full-body marts with Reva Reva from their toes all the way up to their head, like literally every crevice of their body was covered. Uh, and that practice had been happening for generations before them. But my great-grandmother's generation, that was the period of time, they called it the period of darkness before the missionaries came, before Christianity came into the village. So that was the period of darkness. And then when the missionaries came, they were actually Samoan missionaries. So we were, you know, a lot more welcoming to them because they were brown like us. Um, The Samoan missionaries came along with other missionaries to our village and they told us that what we were doing was it was wrong it wasn't holy and that we had to stop 
And there were stories from women from that time that remembered being in those marking huts and those marking homes and the missionaries coming and grabbing the tools and throwing them in the ocean. And there were women, old women in our village who had half-finished marks and you can see it as you go down their body and sometimes you can see it on the actual mark itself. It's just finished instant. You can see the change and the stop. So that changed in my great-grandmother's generation and then there was my grandmother's generation, my bubu's generation, and they were the ones who were went to the schools with nuns and uh, were taught by missionaries. We had the churches in the village and they were taught that this was not a practice that we should continue. And so my bubu's generation were also scared about getting marks. They were scared about the pain. They were scared about what it would mean. Um, because that is what they were taught to believe. So they didn't have any marks. But my bubu, when she came to Australia, she ended up getting some on her body because they were her mother's, both of her mother's marks, and she wanted to make sure that she had them. So my bubu's got some, and my bubu is part of that generation where it's the period of light, where the missionaries were in the village. So we've gone from period of darkness to period of light. So that's my bubu's generation. And then my mother's generation, uh, that generation who are seeing all the old people pass away. And as the old people pass away, the marks are leaving and the stories are leaving. And so my mum's generation and my mum and my aunties said, you know, we can't let it just stop. We're responsible for keeping this alive for our children. And so my mum and my aunties, my auntie Julia, my auntie Pixie, my auntie Nata, lots of other aunties there, um, they saw it as their responsibility to keep those marks alive. And so they went on this journey of reviving the marks. So looking through that anthropological text, I actually always find that so interesting that missionaries thought it was so wrong, but then they also, missionaries and anthropologists were also documenting it. I don't know why that is, but it's just something that I always think about. And so my mum and my aunties were going through anthropological texts, sitting down with our elders in the village and here in Australia and asking them about the marks. What does this mark mean? Where do we place this mark on the body? And they went through this journey. They created a series of documentaries as well called Tep Talk. Um, so Tep, which is tap, and then Talk, which is talking. So they created those documentaries uh, to document that journey, but also something for their daughters and their sons and their children to look at in the future. And it was about bringing that practice back into life. And then there's my generation now, which is, this is our practice. It's been brought back and now it's here. It's every day. Uh, and it's our responsibility to teach. It's now my responsibility and my legacy to teach my children if I have them in the future. This is our practice, and it was uh, the way I talk about it is that our practice was quiet for a moment. It was quiet for a generation. It wasn't eradicated, so it just went quiet, and now it's back, and it's loud, and it's here, and it's in your face, literally. Um, <laughs> on your face as well. So that's kind of the journey of it going quiet, coming back, and now it's back here, and now we're just living that practice every day. That's yeah. wonderful. I love the way you look at it like that. Like mm. it was it was being quiet, and mm -mm. now we're loud again. Mm -mm. <laughs> and 
you know, your family has played a vital part in reviving the art, Mm-mm. which is really wonderful. So mm. it's, it's a work in progress. Mm. It's, they're not all done at the same, you know, they're all mm. done at different stages of your life. Yeah, I always say that my marks acknowledge different um, moments of time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you looked at my body now, I've got marks on my back, which were done in Papua New Guinea. Those mark that significant moment. These mark a moment when I came back from working um, in remote communities for six months, and then the ones on my back, on my on the back of my thighs, also acknowledge that time, and the ones in my face acknowledge when I graduated from university. So different moments in each of them tell a different story as well. Can you tell me a bit about what happened mm. um, when you were trying to get into a nightclub? Yeah, so was it last year? Yeah, last yeah. year. That was last year in um, June, I think. I It had literally been about two weeks since I came back from Aotearoa and I got my face done. Um, so I went and had this beautiful experience in Aotearoa and I got my marks done, came back two weeks later and we were out celebrating my partner's birthday and we were like, oh, we want to go dance, let's go out to the club and so we all went out and I went to this one venue and I was denied entry at that venue and the reason I was denied entry was because of my marks because they had a blanket ban on all face, neck and hand tattoos is what they said and so I said to the security guard, you know, these are cultural marks, um are you still going to deny me entry? And he said yes. So uh, I waited about 24 hours before I reached out to the venue and I said, you know, this happened to me last night. Would you like to say anything further? Um, And they just said, this is a blanket policy. You know, the textbook copy of this is what we do, blah, blah, blah. And I just went, no, not good enough. Uh, And, yeah, from there it was... A period of educating and you know I was angry as well I was like I just come from having such a beautiful experience getting my marks and that's always I was in this honeymoon phase is the way I called it um to come here and be just denied entry because I just wanted to dance that's what I wanted to do um and so I knew that I would have to educate both the venue but also the wider public. It was a timely reminder that there is still a lot of misinformation out Mm. there. There's a lot of hatred out there, Um, a lot of racism as well. So that was a moment where I was like, okay, now's the time to educate because I'm the eldest in my family. I'm going to be the head of my family here. And then we went to the Human Rights Commission Uh, the Australian Human Rights Commission, and then they went to the venue, gave the venue an opportunity to respond, and then we went through mediation for about four or five months. I graduated university during that time of going through the commission, but I had written as my last university paper about receiving my marks. And so that was an in-depth look into the history of the marks, into my journey of knowing that I was about to receive the marks on my face, So I had this paper that I gave to the venue and I said, this is my story and this is why I'm so angry. I gave them the documentaries that I spoke about before, the TEP Talk documentaries. They watched those. And then I gave them another series of resources and I said, this is why it's discrimination, this is why it's racial discrimination. Because there was also still some confusion where I think this was also just kind of in public conversation, not so much between myself and the venue, but oh, it's not racism because you're white. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay, so we're back at that old chestnut. 
But And then we had that conversation, lots of mediation, and the flip for that organisation was uh, if you had told me that we would be here back then, I wouldn't have believed you. So they completely changed after they took in those resources and they were like, yeah, we see now as best as we can why this has been hurtful and we're going to change the policy, we're going to train our staff um, because we want to be an example for other venues. Those conversations were always so heavy but they were so important because they needed to learn and then by the end of it, it was like... You've done the work. It's been long work, but you've done it, and now here we are. And you can, hand to heart, say you can be an example for other venues. That is Papua and Australian Moale James speaking with Salamasina, host of ABC Radio Australia's Culture Compass. Ngangana for Samoa is the official language of Samoa, alongside English, but is the island nation at risk of losing their Samoan language, with English increasingly being spoken and widely used in all facets of Samoa's everyday life. Calls for a full transition from the English language to Samoan in schools, organisations and government agencies was made by the Minister of Education, Sports and Culture, Siula Ioane Tuaau. I spoke to Tuaau, who believes this will only strengthen the language and help the next generation. Our commission for Samoan language is already in place. Uh, people from the community, the church and the government but as soon as we look uh, at how the possible of uh, reviewing our Nangana Samoa so that we can uh, establish new ideas and new methodology to bring up the way we have to use our language, uh, as soon as we see that sometimes maybe uh, our language will fall away from us, so that's why we bring up so that we can look and try to protect their language for our people to use instead of uh, depending on other language uh, beside our own mother tongue. Minister, you have talked about that, you know, to protect the language. So have you seen a decrease in the use of Ngangana or the Samoan language in Samoa? Yeah, because that's what will happen here. As soon as the technology is coming and forces its way to our uh, Samoan community as well as uh, our culture, so we are looking forward to protect the language from uh, getting out of us. So it's good to look at it now and do something about it. So that's why we set up this week, uh, last week, as Fatawalanganamo. Uh, but we are not mentioning our English-speaking picture people and our uh, way forward for uh, economy of the government. But we only uh, point on and focus on Nanangana Samoa. If this was to change, uh, how much would this actually maybe cost to implement these changes? And, and how soon could it happen? Well, the, the way we were looking at some changes is just to stand fast and let the language in use properly and stick. Uh, and also, you know, the languages, uh, body language, writing, as well as uh, publication in Samoa, it, it should be called together with English as soon as we're looking forward that some of our local newspapers 
only use uh, English language, but where about our Samoan language? Because most of our elderly people uh, still need to know the news and want to read, but there's no newspaper around for Samoan language. So that's why we want to protect and bring up good ideas so that we can maintain our own language and use it and as an everyday uh, life uh, way of communication to our families, churches, even the government. Do you have the backing of the government if there was a possible transition or are there people maybe in opposition to you? Yeah, the government is starting to using uh, of uh, language English and Samoan, as well as uh, at the parliament meeting, we still uh, have uh, Samoan copy because we uh, communicate and and meet in Samoan language. But we we, we still have our English copy for the verses during the meeting. So we start from the. The parliamentary, and we, we need that to go through every ministry and when we communicate to other people, uh, media and uh, local communities, so that our language can be uh, never fade from us. And that is Minister of Education in Samoa, Sports and Culture, Seula Ioane Tuao. The Sydney community will get the chance to learn all about weaving and making Bella's inspired accessories and jewellery at a major museum later this month. Of course, Papua New Guinea community member Petra Arafay will give the workshop at the Australian Museum, teaching attendants how to make fans, baskets and jewellery. In the PNG, the practice of body adornment is known as Bella's, which celebrates the connection of people to places and living things. I'll be working on two projects with them uh, at two work, two different workshops. One's um, creating jewellery and the other one is um, just weaving, showing them weaving techniques. So those are associated with what, you know, our um, people did back in the day, but we'll, we'll be um, putting a bit of twist to a modern, you know, a bit of a modern twist to it so that the participants at the workshop walk away with um, something nice to wear or or have at their homes. And are there any particular items you'll be focusing on? I will be doing jewellery, um, necklaces and um, bracelets and within a placement and a, a coin purse. So really showing them the technique of how these things uh, were done traditionally, but now, you know, with a bit of a modern twist to it, um, it's something that can be um, worn today as well. But m- like talking about how our people adorn themselves with uh, the different types of villas or what we call, you know, um, decorations on their on them to go out for feasts and sing sing and all of that kind of thing back in back home here. And Bilas, the practice of body adornments has big cultural significance, but it's also quite practical. Could you explain how these two sides are connected? Belongs um, back culturally, and if you um, connected to like the cultural festivities, it's it's what people wear traditional costumes that they wear that's significant to their tribes and their um, provinces as well. That they they were to go to a, a feast or a sing sing or um, a cultural event. 
And that, you know, it could be from one area, it would be gruskets. And on top of that, they put um, different uh, decorations on like headdresses and necklaces that, um, you know, make it nice and bright and creative for the body so that um, they can participate in the in the sing-sing or festivities that take place. For this workshop, what materials are you planning to use? For the weaving workshop, we're definitely using pandanus leaves um, to show them how to make a small placement that they can take away in a coin purse. For the jewellery, um, we'll be using shells and other, other beads because we can't really get the seeds and all of that kind of thing from Papua New Guinea. We're just using contemporary ones that we, we can have. We, we find available here, but we, we make relationships to what we use back home. Why do you think it's important for the public to take part in such workshops? It's important to share our cultural knowledge and, you know, share a little bit of what um, our Papua New Guinea, um, how things are done there and, you know, some facts so that, you know, we also educate them because I don't think a lot of people living overseas know much about Papua New Guinea until, you know, something happens, like, you know, on the TV or that kind of thing, and then they, they start to ask, oh, where is that, and all of that. And like, I've come across a lot of people while living here in Australia, um, when they ask, what's your background? And I said, Papua New Guinea, oh, okay, where is that? <laughs> so I have to explain a little bit. So I, I think this is a good opportunity, you know, when I'm conducting those two workshops on the weekend, um, I'd be able to share with them some facts about Papini, where it is, you know, our culture, languages, and, you know, teach them about um, some of our cultural um, artifacts and crafts. And what do you hope to achieve? What do you want people to go away with? How unique Papini is with all its diverse culture and languages and customs. I want them to go away with at least two or three facts knowing about Papini Guinea so they can use that experience to talk to people, you know, and oh, you know, they can share some of those facts about Papini Guinea to friends and family that they come across. Or if they meet a Papini Guinea and they can, you know, proudly say, Oh, I attended a workshop and this is what I learned about Papini Guinea. So at least They walk away with some facts about Papua New Guinea and knowing some significant, you know, um, cultural um, things that we do that's also relevant to today's day and age. So with the Bilas, like some of the things that were practiced before. Now, um, a lot of uh, Papua New Guinean fashion designers are, are doing things using um, the traditional patterns and all of that and turning them into um, clothing today. And so you can, you know, they can see the relationship of what happened before. But now in, in the modern times, this is how people wear them in, in terms of fashion today. Petra Irafay speaking to the ABC's Depravka Volida there. And now two Papua New Guinean artists are in Australia taking part in a street art festival in the Northern Territory's city of Darwin. The festival brings together artists from many countries to showcase their talent. Susan Kania with more. Two PNG artists are showcasing their skills and work in Australia. Robert Banasi and Morgan Lavapore have been painting street art in the Australian city of Darwin. Mr. Banasi says while the life of the artist can be challenging back home in PNG, it's important because it identifies the struggles of ordinary people. Our country PNG has been founded on art. 
So it is very important for us to keep that alive in our tradition. Art has been part of all our lives. It doesn't matter where you come from. The grass that we wear, the villas, the armbands, the headbands, and everything is art. And our lives as Papua New Guineans is surrounded by art. The two artists have collaborated together to paint a huge mural depicting marine life and its significance to Papua New Guineans in Darwin. In that one wall, we wanted to capture as much as possible the stories that we have back home in terms of our marine life back there. It's been an amazing experience. We've had a lot of compliments coming from all over Papua New Guinea and from all the our one talks here in both Australia and abroad. And it's been an honor to actually represent um, Papua New Guinea in one of these international events. And we really look forward to coming back home with more experiences to share to both our new and upcoming artists and also to be that bridge that connects old artists like the late Matias Kawage, the late Martin Morobubuna, Larry Santana, and um, Tabasilao and all these other former artists that we had that actually represented PNG in the past overseas. Their work was made possible through a partnership between PNG's National Cultural Commission and Australia's Paradise Palette to promote PNG contemporary art in Australia. Mr. Banasi believes this is just the beginning of the future collaboration between PNG and Australian art. It's a pity that we have not emphasized that much back home. And coming here and learning from the Aboriginal artists here, they honor art. They live and breathe art here in Australia. And it's a great challenge when we look at it. But PNG has that connection in art, on our clay pots, on our bamboo band. And everything that we use in a household is art. So going back to the constitution of our country, PNG, it's in the third preamble. It's there. It's one of the core foundations of our country. So... I would love to see our government putting more emphasis to help more the National Cultural Commission to recognize that, yes, there are new and upcoming artists coming up and we have the old artists going away. How can we create that bridge with all the other artists that we have today? So there are some that actually go through the art school and there are others who are actually self-taught. They learn from their fathers. Their father was a carver or, you know, the, the father was a sculptor. And then now the kids actually carry on. So it's like very... Like it's, it's passing on from father to son, father to son, mother to daughter. So our everyday, day-to-day living is founded around art. That is why it is very important for us to learn from that and also to promote it more at the international level. PNG's National Cultural Commission has been looking at ways of increasing the exposure of local artists by getting them to travel overseas. NCC's arts industry manager, Hilary Miria, says over the years, the industry has become dormant and this is a way of reviving it. What we're actually doing for the National Cultural Commission is to open up the market, but it will take time to try to come to you know, understand and try to see how we can be able to break through those barriers. And the most important thing that the National Cultural Commission has in mind is not to leave anyone behind. So, you know, this kind of uh, initiative the National Cultural Commission has done, has fully funded uh, the exhibition in Cairns and also for the exhibition in Darwin, which is now currently uh, running. We want to bring money back to the country. So that can be able to, you know, help mostly the artists you know, back home or in a remote places so that, you know, they can be able to be part and part of developing our economy. 
And that is Hilary Miria from PNG's National Cultural Commission. ABC correspondent Sally Sarah has described the situation as the war next door. Right on Australia's doorstep, a bloody battle for independence has raged for more than 60 years in Indonesian-ruled West Papua. One symbol of peaceful resistance was musician and anthropologist Arnold App, who fought to preserve Papuan culture through his music. But it made him a target of the Indonesian military and eventually cost him his life. His son, Reiki App, today lives in exile in the Netherlands. ABC Radio Australia's Bobby McCumber asked him how much danger the family was in while living in West Papua. Um, so, yeah, my family was quite in danger. That's why um, we already were informed to flat West Papua to the neighbouring Papua New Guinea. And that's what we did in the hope that we would be reunited with our dad when he would left the prison um, at the time. So my mother and three brothers at the time, I was still in my mom's belly, fled to the neighboring uh, uh, country, Papua New Guinea, uh, via a boat from Jaipura to Fanimo in the night, in the midst of the night, in a small boat. That's what I've heard from my mother. Um, And yeah, imagine a pregnant woman um, in a boat in the night with three other kids. um, that was already quite dangerous, but realizing that when we stay in West Papua, there was an opportunity that we were killed, uh, all the family, really pushed us to go to Papua New Guinea. And that's where we arrived, um, uh, I think, a couple of days later in in a refugee camp in Papua New Guinea. And that's where I was born, uh, um, in the refugee camp in Papua New Guinea, where we heard the message that um, yeah, our father was murdered um, uh, several months before uh, April. It became April 1984, and I was born in August 1984, so four months late. So, yeah, I can imagine that my mother was, uh, of course, very emotional, and my oldest brothers as well, because they had an age of, what is it, nine, ten years. So they, you know, quite uh, realized what happened. And, yeah, I was just born there as baby, so I didn't realize anything until we arrived in the Netherlands and where I grew up and then heard the story of the way my father was uh, took away of his life. And you were born in a refugee camp. What were the conditions like? Yeah, so the conditions in a refugee camp, you can imagine if you even see the pictures today, it's like uh, self-made homes from cells, from leaves, from wood, very, very, very uh, basic uh, uh, camps uh, uh, without proper facilities, as we see today in a, for example, UN facilitated uh, refugee camp, that, that would be a, a, a immense privilege if you compare to how we as refugees then and even today in, in, in refugee camps are living in very, very poor conditions. Uh, but at least we are alive. And a lot of our people we know are still running away from the Indonesian military. So even in such circumstances, we embrace the freedom that we at least have in such camps in Papua New Guinea. Now, after a year, your family fled to the Netherlands, the country that once colonised West Papua. Why there? Um, I think because the majority of uh, the West Papuans who fled West Papua and also Papua New Guinea went to the Netherlands because there's uh, a large community of uh, Indigenous West Papuans who fled West Papua as well because of the political situation there. So it was quite... Uh, logic because we had a lot of network here. There were people who were also 
when they received the matches that Arnold Out was assassinated, he was already kind of famous in our community. So they said, we want the family app to come to the Netherlands. And also the church played an important role. Um, at the time, we were really welcomed by the, uh, the church in the Netherlands because of also the role in West Papua as missionaries and so on. So it was quite clear that the best way to flat uh, Papua New Guinea was the Netherlands because there's a community here. There's some churches who are willing to facilitate us. So that's what's happened. And I think... Um, it was quite, we were quite well received here in the Netherlands, uh, looking back at the time. How would you describe your childhood there in the Netherlands? Yeah, so um, my childhood in the Netherlands is quite normal if I reflect on that uh, period. Um, I grew up as any Dutch uh, citizen. Um, but of course, I had a color and more, I was, I think, the only black skinned kid in the class. So yeah, obviously I was different, but I didn't feel that, that way because uh, I had the luck that it was quite peaceful at the school where I was. But when I grew up and I get the age of 15, 16, that was really a moment that changed my life because that was the moment that my mother asked me, come to sit on the table. And I want to tell you something, namely... I want to tell you why we really fled to the Netherlands. And she showed me the pictures that we still have of my father in a coffin with where I could saw the torture lines on his body and also the bullet wounds. And that was the moment that basically, you know, turned my life totally. I was, of course, at that time, I was 16 years old, 15, 16. So I was angry. I was frustrated. I was sad. Um, but what can you do as a kid of 16 years old? But at that moment, something in me ignited. And I said, I want to pay back the Indonesian military, what they've done to my father, realizing that my father is not the only one, but now reports are saying more than 500,000 people. So something sparks, but that was the journey that made me to find out who I really am, what who are indigenous people, because we didn't learn anything on the Dutch schools are how we are former colonists in the Netherlands. They've wiped out our shared history. So I had to learn. I interviewed my uncles, my aunties, my grandpas to make sure that um, I understand the picture better than, than you know, um, the education systems here. That was West Papua and Reiki Amp speaking with ABC Radio Australia's Bobby McCumber for Stories from the Pacific. Join me, Sosefina Formoli, for On The Record, an hour-long deep dive into the music that has made an incredible range of artists from right across the Pacific. We'll discover stories behind songs of inspiration, songs of activism, songs of evolution and songs of pride as we chop it up with Pacifica musicians you already know and love and hopefully some you'll be meeting and falling in love with for the first time. On The Record, Tuesdays at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Uh, recapping our top story, the Methodist Church in Fiji has called for authorities to target the South Korean religious group Grace Roads, which some have labelled a cult. We call it a cult movement because it's away from the mainstream movement. Cult movements is away from what we see in the Bible and what the Bible teaches. Revered Wilfred Vergunamata, the spokesman for the Methodist Church in Fiji, speaking there. Meanwhile, a senior executive, Grace Rhodes, Adam Song, says the crackdown is religious persecution. This current situation is not about our president, Daniel King, and six other members at the Bijus, but rather an attack on the entire GR group 
The company, a religious group of 400 people, and valued local employees who have become GR Group family. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though. News is next, coming up. After that is News and Daily. Until then, I'm Aggie Dubol, and this is Pacific Beat.